Welcome back to the award-winning Anxiety Slayer podcast. I'm Shan Vanderleek, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah Mackay about the neurobiology of womanhood. Sarah is an Oxford University-educated neuroscientist, educator, media commentator, director of the Neuroscience Academy, and author of the Woman's Brain Book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones, and Happiness. Sarah lives on the northern beaches of Sydney, Australia with her Irish husband. Together, they're raising two boys and a cocker spaniel, and they can be found sailing, surfing, mountain biking, or skiing. Welcome to Anxiety Slayer, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Shan. It's a privilege to speak to you. It's wonderful to speak with you. I'm really grateful that you reached out and and wanted to have this conversation because our brains are just so fascinating. And I'd love to begin talking about why you decided to write a book about the female brain, and then we'll take it from there. So I've been a neuroscientist pretty much my entire professional career. I went from school to university my second year enrolled in university enrolled in a degree in neuroscience. This is in New Zealand back in the early 90s. And if essentially that's kind of been my career path, I worked in medical research and academia for about the first sort of five years post my PhD research, working doing working in medical research, primarily focused on unraveling the neurobiology of neuroplasticity you know how and why does our brain change in response to experience that was really what I was fascinated in and then I moved more into science communications and education sort of over the last 10 years and I've been blogging and talking and teaching within this neuroscience space now for about sort of 20-25 years. One of the, the gigs that I had was working with the ABC here in Australia writing a neuroscience blog for them and as part of that I'd written um, uh, an article on this phenomenon of menopause and brain fog. We had an absolute outpouring of fascination with that topic And, and essentially the idea was that you know lots of women when they're going through perimenopause and menopause feel a bit fuzzy, feel a bit like they're kind of losing their mind and it turns out that those sort of hormonal fluctuations and all of the other life events that kind of coalesce around, you know, your late 40s, early 50s, most inevitably result in these, these kind of feelings of brain fog. And over time, it goes away and it's okay. So we had this enormous outpouring around that. In 2016, I was phoned up by a book publisher, a very charismatic and dynamic lady called Jeanne Rickmans. And she said, oh, why haven't you written a book? Why haven't you written a book? And I was like, oh gosh, well, I once wrote a PhD, once wrote a PhD thesis, and quite frankly, that was enough. And I do a lot of writing, and it's really hard work. And you know what? I don't really have the great book idea. And it just never really been a burning desire of mine. She said, well, let's meet over coffee and have a chat. And so we met, because she was quite a charismatic woman. I said, well, I'll meet her. And then she said, right, so books. And I was like, well, I don't have anything I could possibly, I don't have the idea. And she said, well, what have you ever written for an audience that has resonated with them? And I said, well, that's easy because a few years ago I put this piece on menopause. And she said to me, well, there you go. Let's write a book on menopause. And at the time I was about 40, 41. And I was like, well, I'm afraid that's not really in my engine room. That's something that will happen in the very far distant future. I don't know anything about menopause. And then she said, oh, what about baby brain? Is that a thing? And I went, well, that's interesting. I have lots of thoughts on baby brain. And I had a bit of a moment of realisation that I had been working in this neuroscience space for, you know, my entire professional career, had been the owner and operator of a 
female body and brain from, you know, all the way through my life. And I had never before considered how the two interconnected. I'd never really before taken a look at a lot of these very female biological experiences we have, puberty and periods and pregnancy and menopause. I'd never considered them before through the lens of neurobiology. And that's not to say I'm a bit sort of slow on the uptake. It's just that neuroscience is the most enormous, broad, deep subject. Sure, There's so sure. many paths that you can go down. Um, and I just hadn't kind of taken that, that particular journey except for this one piece on menopause. And, and I very quickly realised, because most of my research career had been focused around these concepts of plasticity, particularly during development, particularly during childhood, that if we were going to take a look at any specific point in the lifespan, if we were going to look at puberty, if we were going to look at pregnancy, we really needed to look at the events that had led to that point because every experience we have shapes and sculpts our brain. And so if we were to take a window in, we really needed to have a lifespan perspective. And that was really how the book was born. So I, I sort of rushed off home after this conversation and, and essentially sort of started in utero childhood, puberty, the teenage years, and, and, and it's just wrote a long list of questions sitting under each of these phases of the lifespan that I didn't know the answers to. I was a neuroscientist, I was a female, I thought, well, how am I going to answer these questions? And for me, that was kind of the journey of writing the book, was, was the excitement of sitting down every day and asking of my discipline, neuroscience, the answers to these questions I'd sort of posed as a woman. Mm, that's so awesome. And I suspect that you're one of the, the first to do so. I don't think I would say that. What I was lucky enough to do, having trained in the field for so many years, I know a lot of people who know how to answer those questions. So sure. I knew people working with a neuroendocrinology, which is really the kind of how brains and hormones work together. I knew people who had researched the teenage brain. I knew people who were working on child development. I knew people who were working on un trying to understand anxiety and depression in girls and women. I knew people who were working on menopause. So I had, the, I knew which doors to knock on. And which right, phones you, you to had ring. the resources to pull yeah, together I, for yeah, this. I knew, I knew sure. how to start reading the literature in a way that would enable me to answer these questions. So I certainly wasn't the first person. But for me, it was quite a personal journey in that respect that it, it gave me this great time, you know, sort of these opportunities to reflect on, on lots of the, the points in my lifespan sure. up to which I was, you know, sort of, I was up to open up conversations with men and women. Um, males and females. I'm, I'm pretty loose with the, the language around that at the moment. I know you have to be quite careful, but I think you have to, to frame that up at the beginning. And, and, and one of the things I noticed, I suppose, was when I was writing the book, I, I was writing a book about female brain, women's brains, or whatever, almost inevitably the first question people would want to know was a male versus female brain question. And then I was quite surprised initially because I was like, oh, I'm writing about the differences. I'm I'm writing about periods. I'm writing yeah, about exactly. I'm writing about pregnancy. But it, it was an important question to be asked because I think you've got to answer the questions that people are the most curious about. If you sure. Uh, and it, and it also meant that I had to really deeply reflect on what are the influences on our brains through the lifespan differences between our experiences as girls and boys growing up our experiences as men and women as we get older there are biological differences there are social differences there are different ways that we are taught to think and feel and behave and 
so, so it was a really reflecting on that at, at the same time. Sure. In some of the subject matter too, in the States, talking about menopause is, do we talk about that? Oh, <laughs> is anybody giving that any attention? Or is, is there this entire population of women who are, who are uh, spending their days thinking, what's that? What's that? Mm. What's that? Oh, oh, what's going sure. on? What's that? And so as I was thinking about it and when I brought that forward is that because of your focus on the female brain, uh, it it always, uh, as a, as a lay person, I think I've always thought that the female brain uh, was probably uh, more complicated than the male brain. (laughs) 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 And my husband right now would be like giving me a funny look, but because of, of the changes that we go through, but of course men, go through their own changes as well yeah I've got little I've got boys and I think um their lives that in some ways they're more straightforward as a mother of a boy I've got 10 12 year old boys you know I think sometimes my life is more straightforward than the mothers of girls in terms of the kind of the emotional rumination and and complexity of social relationships at that age but there's also a lot that's really complicated as well mm-hmm. for, for boys developing into men that perhaps we as, as women and mums don't, don't recognize. Let's talk about how hormones affect our brain and in turn our emotions, behaviors, mm. and anxiety for, the, for those listening in who suffer with different forms of anxiety. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really fascinating question. So I think um, when we talk about hormones and we're talking about women, typically we tend to assume that we're talking about ovarian hormones. We're talking about, um, you know, the estrogen and the progesterone that, that are produced by our ovaries. And in particular between, you know, if you've got a, a, a reasonably normal monthly cycle between puberty and menopause, except when we're pregnant or perhaps on the pill, you know, that, that tends to fluctuate each month. And so in, in, a, in a way, we've got kind of a natural monthly biological experiment. And we know that the hormones produced by our ovaries, in a way, are regulated by output from the brain, but in turn feed back into the brain. They're able to enter the brain and interact with brain cells or neurons, as we call them, and influence how those neurons function in a certain way. There are a whole host of other hormones, some which are produced by, for example, the adrenal glands in our kidneys. We might have adrenaline or noradrenaline or cortisol, which are released as part of the kind of the stress response in response to some kind of threat or challenge or opportunity. And in turn, these can influence the functioning of our brain and the rest of our body. And then we also have a whole host of hormones that are manufactured and released from the brain itself. And some of these work locally within the brain and some of these um, are released into the bloodstream and affect our body. And examples of these might be, that example, oxytocin, which is released locally in the brain and also into the blood. Another might be um, a hormone that's released to regulate the menstrual cycle itself. So there's a whole host of different hormones at play that have got their different cycles. It might be hourly or daily or monthly that, that are interacting. I guess from the perspective of women's health, we do like to focus on our, our, our female hormones, our ovarian hormones, because you know, we have these these monthly cycles that the gentlemen don't. So I, I guess when I went into writing the book, I thought it, I was going to largely focus on hormones, and I did. However, when I started digging into the neuroscience literature, taking a look at the influence of hormones on the brain, it was I was kind of surprised because, yes, they play a role, but I think perhaps not as loud a role, whereas I say the voice in the crowd isn't necessarily as loud in every woman 
um, at every every point in the lifespan is what perhaps we might think when we start delving into the, into these issues. And I was I was quite surprised about that. So initially, I thought, well, I want to take a look at how our female hormones, our ovarian hormones, influence cognition. So that is thinking, you know, judgment, reasoning, emotional regulation, our ability to make decisions, what we would call cognition in the brain, all the kind of thinking stuff. And when I started digging into the literature, looking at that, there was no evidence to show that hormones in any way um, influenced our cognitive capacity. You know, you can look at very, very careful studies, perhaps of verbal memory or perhaps of um, decision making. And we, I mean, we just simply couldn't find evidence to support that there was a strong link. But I think, well, that's, that's not saying there's... Uh, the research hasn't been done, it's that the research has been done and it turns out that women are perfectly capable of thinking, <laughs> judging, <laughs> reasoning, holding down jobs, you know, being prime ministers of countries with, you know, I grew up in New Zealand, we've had a, had a long, um, you know, we've had many female prime ministers over the years and, and those of us who work know that we sure. can do our jobs quite well. So that was, that was quite affirming in a way. I thought, well, emotions are going to be different, right, because we're, we're, we're we, you know, we have that very strong narrative around the role of um, hormones in our emotions. So I sort of started digging into that literature. And again, interestingly, the careful studies that were done looking at very specific aspects of emotion and emotional regulation weren't showing any strong tendency that hormones were the loudest voice in the crowd. They, did, they played a role, but they weren't the prime determinant of emotional variability. So I was sort of surprised about that again. And I thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of step back and look at a more of a, let's look at a more of a generic emotional state. I'm going to look at PMS or premenstrual syndrome, premenstrual tension, whatever language you use. Mm -hmm. That kind of emotional crankiness that lots of women experience in the week or so before their period. And I thought, well, there'll be a ton of stuff on that. There was a lot of research on that. I dug up what's called a meta-analysis, and for those who don't know, a meta-analysis in the scientific literature essentially pulls together all of the studies that have been done on a particular topic with the idea that there's power numbers. The more information we have, the more certain we can make a, a judgment on the validity of that data. It was, it was fascinating because it looked at, at reported rates of PMS around the world. I just was kind of like, how many women suffer from PMS? I thought that would be a very easy to question to answer. According to this study, it varied by the country you live in. So it varied somewhere between kind of about 10% in countries like France and Switzerland and Central Europe there. You jump over the border from France into Spain, it increased for around 30 to 40%. It varied all across the world. In Asia, we were, Asian countries, China, we were kind of sitting in, in around the sort of 50%. And then we would go into through to the Middle East and Iran, for example, that was up around um, the kind of the 90%. And, and other countries might show sort of similar, similar degrees of reporting. Yes, I suffer from PMS. I get emotional before my period. So I was kind of floored. And the study authors were as well. Was, what's the rate of PMS? Somewhere between 10 and 90%. <laughs> Somewhere between hardly anyone or almost everyone. But it depends which country you live in. Right. And I thought, well, that's weird. Because that if weird. it's a hormonal thing, why are the rates so different depending on the cultural society you live in? Surely there's a different story going on here. Biology doesn't vary between French women and Spanish women that they're going to show this, this extraordinary difference in report. 
there's a there's a psychiatrist in New Zealand, a women's health psychiatrist called Sarah Romans, who's also very interested in this kind of data. And of course, she sees a specific segment of the population. She's a psychiatrist, so she's dealing with women with reasonably extreme mental health issues like deep depression, you know, untreated anxiety, and, and perhaps far worse issues. And what she she found was time and time again, she was having these conversations with women who were blaming their entire kind of emotional status on their reproductive status. I'm a woman, I have hormones, that's why I'm depressed. And she, and she said that the, the story and the narrative was reasonably strong. And she said she wasn't always entirely sure whether that, that was the sole driver of a woman's emotional state was hormones. So, and she, she'd come across again this kind of, these, these papers that were showing the, the, the extraordinary variation between countries. So she designed quite a clever study. She got a whole, about 300 women were enrolled in the study. Um, they were in Canada and also in New Zealand. They were given a phone app that popped up every day and they had to record their emotional status and they were given about 10 different emotions to draw from and there were an equal number of positive and negative neutral emotions. You know, sad, disappointed, cranky, grumpy, irritated, angry, happy, neutral. <laughs> so it's almost as if the only emotions you have are negative and occasionally you might feel positive. So she, there was an equal number of positive, neutral and negative emotions. Women were asked to report how physically healthy they were feeling, how socially supported they were feeling from their husband, family or friends, how stressed out they were feeling, the level of stress and also the day of their menstrual cycle. The key with the study was the women were not told it was a study about PMS. They were not given any priming about what the study was about. It was like, let's just gather this data over the course of many, many months. And they had many hundreds of menstrual cycles to crunch. And what was fascinating was they found only about one to two in 20 women. So about five to 10% of women showed any clear variation of emotional status based on their hormones. The vast majority of women had fluctuating emotions during the course of the month, but it had nothing to do with the time of the month. Right. Instead, their emotions were far more likely to vary based on how physically well they were feeling, their level of perceived stress, but most significantly how socially supported they felt at that particular point in time. The studies, when you prime women, so we're, looking at, we're looking at PMS for this study, when women are primed, perhaps also depending on the country they live in, the data rolls out very, very differently. And so what this, I, I talked to Sarah Romans about this because I was like, well, does this mean that women don't have PMS? It's all in their head. And she said, oh, no, no, no. The, the emotions are very real. And what we are seeing is this 5 to 10% of women probably are women who are incredibly vulnerable two hormones and their emotions are influenced by their hormonal status. There's absolutely no question that, that is the case in many women. However, the majority of women aren't influenced by their hormones in terms of their emotional fluctuations. We need to be looking at what all of the other voices in the crowd are. And it, it was physical health, it was stress levels, and it was feeling whether you had social support networks around you. And so what she's doing is trying to educate women that there's a lot of voices in the crowd that will influence your emotional state. And isn't it great that actually the things that you do have control over, you might not necessarily have control over whether you have a monthly period. It clears up so many misunderstandings. Yeah, you've got control. You can work on building a good, strong social support network. You know, you can look at your perceived levels of stress. 2020 has been such a stressful year for everyone on the planet. What can we do to buffer those? How can we look at our physical health and, 
and work towards that and all of that can support our emotional health and well-being. It's not to deny any woman's emotional experience and also that, you know, there are a lot of narratives that perhaps may be leading us to, oh, I feel grumpy, perhaps it's my hormones, instead of going, I'm feeling grumpy, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling worried today. Well, actually, maybe I'm, you know, I haven't I had the right kind of reached out to the right kind of emotional support that I need right now. And that gives people a whole lot more agency and choice about how they can choose to respond emotionally. Right, instead of, instead of blaming everything on hormones. Which we can't necessarily oh. always do. I mean, the, the, you know, we could perhaps manipulate them with sure. a pill if you wanted, or and, and there are women who are very vulnerable. So that is sure. not deny those women's experiences, but no. But I'll tell there's you, there's a whole lot more choice than what we think. There is, and I and I I don't know if this is the same in Australia, but in in the states, a lot of times you, you oh she's just on her period oh, she's probably PMSing or, you know, all of that kind of judgment along with, well, no, maybe she hasn't had time to get grounded today. Maybe she hasn't been out in the fresh air. Maybe she needs to look at her nutrition. Maybe she needs all of these. Maybe she needs to look at her sleep. Maybe she needs to exercise. Maybe she needs to, you know, maybe she needs more social emotional support. And not only is it other people saying that to someone, it's us saying it to ourselves. It is us saying it to ourselves Um, because it's programming. Programming. Yeah, absolutely. And that is so powerful. And what this taught me, this is a real, quite a shift in my, in my, my thinking and broadly around, the influences on the brain and particularly writing this book that um and i and i i use the analogy of voices in the crowd there's different voices in the crowd that are louder and quieter at different points in the lifespan and it's up to us you know we can we can tune into a particular channel or a particular voice and tune out mm-hmm. um, i suppose it's about trying to take a bit more of a holistic perspective over that um, and not default to the narrative that we may or may not have grown up with. And that is an incredibly powerful influence over many aspects of our, our health and, and, and biology. And particularly, as you would know from the work that you do in the mental health space and in the anxiety space, the voices in our head are incredibly powerful in determining a health outcome. Yeah, and it's really important that we don't always believe everything we think, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's very hard not to, isn't it? Let's talk about uh, what principles of neuroscience that, that all of our listeners should know. Oh, my goodness. I guess for me, perhaps one way to frame up some of what I've been talking about in terms of, of, of these PMS studies and emotions and, and thinking and feeling, I like to describe the brain as, as sort of sitting in the center of the bottom up, the outside and the top down. Because if we're like, what, you know, what influences the brain? What should I be doing? Should I be outside? Should I be talking to someone? Should I be eating? What, you know, all the, I, I say, right, let's, let's kind of place the brain, the brain in the middle of a really simple framework. We've got our bottom-up biology. And we have in there our genes and our hormones, and they're reasonably set. I mean, we can get, have, work on our bottom-up health to, to ensure that they are healthy. We can work on our bottom-up health to ensure we're eating the right nutrition. We are exercising, we're moving our body the way we should through the natural world. We are um, sleeping our body and our brain in the way we should. So we've got this bottom-up biological influence on our brain and our brain is constantly monitoring and interacting with our entire body and all of our physiology. The brain and the nervous system stretches from our toes to our fingertips to our eyeballs. And we've got the outside-in world now, our brains evolved to move our bodies through the world. 
that's essentially what, what kind of kick-started the evolution in a way. So when we are moving our body through the natural world, whether we're sitting taking a walk through the bushland or along the beach, we are interacting with Mother Nature. We are one with Mother Nature, really. And the outside world gets into our brain and into our body via our nervous system, via our eyes. Our eyes are simply an extension of our brain. So what we hear, through what we touch, through what we see, the experiences we have, the interactions that we have with other people are incredibly powerful. And our human brains are really tuned into interacting with other people. That's almost one of our sort of our primary inputs. And that's why the PMS study showed that social interaction was one of the most powerful influences of hormones. So we've got our, our previous life experiences and then of course all the external stressful events that happen out there, but they get in under our skin as well. And then finally we've got the, the kind of the hardest, almost slippery ball to hold, and that's the top-down influences over our brain. And they are our thoughts, our emotions, our mindsets, our beliefs, the stories that we are kind of carrying around in our head can also sculpt our brain and influence health outcomes. Let's talk about habits and behaviors and motivation mm. and this, uh, this phenomena where even with the best intentions to become healthier, uh, bottom up, top down, mm. <laughs> um, why, why we often stop or why yeah. we get so far and then it almost feels like a, a form of self-sabotage or, yeah. or something that, that you know, sure. what, let's talk yeah. about that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, I mean, so many people, the work you do, so many people, work, many of us do both of ourselves and whether we're a teacher or perhaps a nurse or a parent or, you know, just someone trying to make a change. The struggle is real. It is very hard to move from behavior A, thought process A, to thought process B or behavior B, whether we wanted to lose weight or exercise more, perhaps stop worrying and ruminating so much. Our brain is essentially quite lazy in that there's a lot of inputs and outputs, as I've described from the bottom up, outside and top down. What the brain wants to do is to really be focusing on processing new and relevant incoming information and making best guesses on what is going to happen next. And the way the brain does that is essentially anything that it doesn't need to be thinking about would like to conserve its energy for something new, novel or important. Anything it doesn't need to be thinking about it likes to automate. So what it likes to do is if a particular behaviour has been repeated over and over enough times, it thinks, right, I'm going to just automate that. And it sort of shifts it out of the thinking parts of your cortex sort of down into subcortical areas, in particular an area of the brain called the striatum. And this is where automatic learned behaviours are. For example, knowing how to ride a bike or perhaps remembering how to play a musical instrument if you've trained in music or perhaps tapping away on your computer keyboard. So all of those processes are stored and rolled out when we need them. But so too are automatic thinking patterns or perhaps automatic behaviours such as automatically driving your car home from work without even having to think about how to navigate. So those are what we would call habits. So when we're trying to make a behaviour change, we really kind of need to think about what is this particular behaviour that I am wanting to do? And is this struggle, what, you know, why am I sort of, we, we come up against struggle. If there wasn't struggle, behaviour change wasn't hard, we wouldn't need teachers and psychologists and therapists because change would be easy, it would just happen. We would right. just simply do it. 
So I like to get people to have a bit of a think. Is the struggle that you are, it's one of perhaps motivation. You don't really want to make the change. You kind of know how to do it. You've, you've got your strategy laid out, but you are lacking in a bit of kind of emotional will or motivation, or you just kind of, meh, you kind of don't want to do it. So it is a matter of want. Is it a matter of, I would say, will? <laughs> you know, you're lacking the will to change. Are you lacking the kind of way? Is it, a, is it more of a matter of you don't have the strategy in place? You really want to change. I really want to lose weight. You have absolutely no idea how to do it. I would really like to stop um, the ruminative anxiety thoughts, the ruminative thoughts that cause me to feel anxious. But I don't actually know. I really want to stop feeling that way, but I don't know how to go about. Well, I don't have a strategy. So it's a problem you have no way. So you're fighting against the way. Are you fighting against the will? Or is the problem... You've got a habitual behaviour that you want to stop doing. And often that's where the problem arises, is that our brain has stored a behaviour, whether it be a thought or a feeling or a behaviour, as an automated habit. And you're trying not to do that habit anymore. And that has often really become unstuck. We can mm -hmm. work on well, we can work on emotions, we can work on strategies on the way. But if it's a habit, it is very, very hard to unwire a habit in much the same way we can't unlearn how to ride a bike. We can't typically unlearn how to tap our name on a computer keyboard. We can't unlearn how to drive a car. So it's also very hard to unlearn a repeated thought pattern. What we've got to do in this from our understanding of neuroscience is almost always a true automated habit rolls out because there's a particular trigger, cue or situation or person perhaps, in which we encounter, perhaps you walk into a room, perhaps you talk to someone, perhaps you drive along a certain road, and your brain goes, oh, I know what's happening now, and it just rolls out this behaviour, this automated thought, this automated um, feeling. You've got to identify the cue, and you have to perform a new learned behaviour in its place. So you can't unwire the habit. You've got to perform a new positive behaviour in place of the original cue. And I suspect you have to do that for a, a significant period of time, too, before yeah. it becomes a habit. Is there, yes. is there a magic number? There's, I don't think there's a magic number. I mean, you could, if you were in the right, if you were able to mindfully work on what is this particular cure situation, you might be able to remove that. Perhaps it's you know, always eating really crappy food. You can just get rid of the food. One really useful time to change a lot of health behaviours and habits is when you move house. I know that doesn't happen for most people all of the time, but you're in a completely new context and situation and environment. A lot of your context and cues have changed. Perhaps you're changing job. You know, there's, there are opportunities in which the cue can be removed, but that's sure. not always the case. So if the cue is there, you can identify that. Like, I always think this and I talk to that person. I always drive that way after I start driving on this road. I always turn right. What can you do in its place? And that is where you've got to um, perform that behaviour enough times that your brain goes, oh, yes, that's important. I've got to do that. That's where the hard work comes in. There are some things that we can do. We can perform the new desired behaviour alongside one that we already like, what we call habit stacking. Perhaps you love listening to podcasts, you hate going for a walk, so you only let yourself listen to a podcast when you're going for a walk. So you can stack a positive habit with a new habit. Right. You could perhaps engage some kind of coach or mentor or guide, some kind of social prescription is embedded within that. So you've got like a support crew with you to help you repeat that over and over enough times again. You've kind of got to make it desirable and enjoyable. So can you embed some kind of reward in there? 
So that instead of just doing it because you think you should, you start doing it because you really look forward to doing it and you want to do it. And then you've just got to kind of use the grip and determination to repeat it enough times that it almost starts to become automated. Now, I, I think that this is easy to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's very hard to do. And I, and I have, you know, had plenty of instances in my own life when I've been trying to change a particular thought process, I think is harder than changing the behaviour in a way. It's harder to think your way out of doing something. Think your way out of thinking something than do your way out of doing something. Yeah. Well, and that was one of the questions that I was going to ask you. Can, can you really think yourself into a, a happier version of yourself or a less anxious version of yourself or you know, I think, something yeah new. look I think you you can try but again it's hard to I think thinking a way out of a thought is much harder than doing a way out of a thought um, and if we look at that bottom up outside and top down you know the brain the, the, the top down influences are incredibly powerful but if you can somehow incorporate a bottom up or an outside in at the same time so um an example might be perhaps what we are all experiencing right now is a great degree of anxiety perhaps even fear in the face of uncertainty everything's uncertain right you can't even plan you know um next week next week let alone what anyone's going to be doing for christmas we've got our summer coming up in december i mean can't even plan summer holidays my son had band practice on monday morning at school wednesday morning the the, the state government's decided no more orchestras because there's too much interaction between kids so now thursday morning he hasn't got band practice I mean, you can't plan a couple of days in advance right now sure. and sure. that's incredibly unsettling that level of uncertainty is just feeding right into everyone's fear because our brain wants to know what's happening next. It likes to react yeah. and respond to what's novel and new. And when everything is, we don't know what's happening next. Everything's upside down. Nothing is normal. Nothing is normal. Absolute recipe for fear <laughs> and anxiety and uncertainty. So instead of trying to think our way out of this, what can we do? And so one of the, and you, you, you might, I might be speaking, preaching to the choir here, but, you know, one of the most useful things we can do is to put in, in, in um, place systems and processes and schedules so that we do know what's happening next. So what, can we physically have a daily timetable that we can write down that it, maybe it's even broken up into 30 hour slots, so 30 hour, 30 minute slots, so we can go, right, okay, at 9am, I'm going to have breakfast at 9.30, I'm going to do the dishes at 10, I'm going to sit down and do half an hour's work answering my emails at 10.30, I'm going to stand up and right, right. around the garden. And so schedule your day so that every half an hour you, you're doing something next. So your brain isn't going, oh gosh, what on earth is happening out there in the world? It's going, right, okay, I know what I'm doing for the next half hour, I know what I'm doing for the next half hour. It's embedding physically embedding some certainty into your behavior and as soon as you start behaving as if there is certainty because you've embedded certainty into your day your brain will start recognizing oh actually there is a bit of certainty coming out i kind of know what's going on and that does slowly start to shift your thought patterns and then um will hopefully also start reducing a bit of the feelings of fear because there's more certainty in there so if you haven't thought your way out of it you're behaving your way out of it and this yes. idea of yes. schedules and timetables having more systems and processes in place is a pretty well recognized prescription sure. for dealing with anxiety so again we haven't thought our way out of this process we've acted our way out of this process another really useful 
behavior that you can do that will help lower this feeling of uncertainty is to exercise every day. And this is not for, you know, obviously we should all be fit and healthy and, you know, it's good for our cardiovascular health and our mental health. But one reason it is really good for reducing levels of anxiety and fear is that when we are moving our bodies through the world, our, remember our, 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 our bodies evolve to navigate our brains through the natural world, we're walking along a path, we can decide whether to turn left or right. We are reminding our, our brains that we actually do retain some agency. Actually, I am still able to move my body through the natural world. A lot of choices may be removed from me right now, but I can still decide to do this particular movement with my body. I can still mm -hmm. jump up and down on the spot. I can still skip. I can still walk up and down the hill. I can still sprint the steps. I can still slowly stroll along the beach. I can still take my dog for a walk. So right. it's quite simple, but exercise is reminding our brains we retain agency. We do retain choice. Hey, there is a little bit of certainty in there. And so again, we're doing something quite simple that's reminding our brain and perhaps slowly starting to change some of those thought processes from the bottom up. Right, right. Oh, thank you so much. What a fascinating conversation today. I've, I've learned so much and I'm really grateful for all of your work and all of the time that you've spent uh, mastering uh, this in very important topic and and many of our listeners probably have never even thought about it before you know beyond <laughs> right beyond yeah. the, the surface of it and to be able to to dig deep and still remember that that taking action and and some of the things that we can do to change our behaviors and, and to allow ourselves this one day at a time and this understanding that not everything that we think is something to believe and that everything that we've been, uh, that we've been conditioned to believe mm. is necessarily the truth. And to be able to learn more about uh, those of us who are female, about our female brains mm. and mm. all of it. I just really, really appreciate you so much. Thank you for choosing to uh, share your expertise on Anxiety Slayer. Oh, no, you're very welcome. Thank you for the invitation. That was Dr. Mackay. You can get a copy of her book, The Woman's Brain Book, at drsarahmackay.com. You can also download her free checklist, Nine Daily Habits of Highly Healthy Brains, and that's at the same website, drsarahmackay.com. You'll find all of the contact information in the show notes at anxietyslayer.com. If you found this podcast helpful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. As a friend of Anxiety Slayer, you'll get access to over 40 guided meditations and extra resources for calming anxiety. Visit patreon.com forward slash anxiety slayer.